When I say the word tradition or ritual or custom, what comes to your mind? What thoughts do you have about those words? Are those positive words or negative words? They conjure up pleasant memories or wretched memories. For sure, there are uh, groups out there in the land of Christendom that have so piled tradition upon tradition upon tradition outside the Bible and in many times conflicting with the Bible that uh, those words are almost like dirty words to us sometimes, aren't they? We seem to load them up with a, with a definition that we would uh, disagree with or think we want no part of. I want to remind you this morning and hopefully convince you this morning that tradition and ritual and custom are not all bad. Not all bad in these ever-changing times. Not all bad in a techno world where despite all of our connectivity, there's more loneliness than there's ever been. Despite all of our technology, many people today are living in a virtual world of pseudo-friends and really lost sight of what true friendship is all about. We're living in a time of a a growing tsunami of distractedness. Even people who used to have no trouble with distractions and were very focused people like myself are finding that I'm becoming increasingly more and more distracted because of emails and text messages and cell phones that are never far from us. Traditions, on the other hand, can anchor us. Traditions can remind us of what's real. Traditions can remind us of what is lasting, what's permanent, what really matters. Tradition can actually connect us to previous generations. Tradition can connect us to each other. Do you have any family traditions? Do you have any things that uh, you do on an annual basis without fail, religiously we might say? Maybe some traditions that have even been passed down generations in your family. We have a family tradition, really just one. About every January, we celebrate a national championship with Alabama Crimson Tide. (laughs) It is quite a a family. I don't know if y'all know anything about that here in Texas, but it is quite a family tradition we thoroughly enjoy. Now now that I've said that, Ken, they'll probably never win another one. I'm ready to own that. I'm ready to own that, yeah. Actually, our family doesn't really do a lot of traditions. Uh, we, we seem to want to do things different all the time. But how about you? Do you have any generational family traditions? It is doubtful, maybe other than going to church, which I don't know that we'd call that a tradition, but it is doubtful <clears throat> that any generational family tradition survived more than two or three generations. Today, we are going to partake and celebrate in a ritual, in a tradition that spans millennium. And this is a tradition and a ritual that you cannot do on the internet. There is no app for this. And there never will be. It's physical. It's tangible. We've got to be together. We've got to touch it, see it, taste it, swallow it. The roots of this tradition, this ritual, go back to 1446 B.C., the exodus of Israel and the first Passover. 
And here we are 3,460 years later. And God's people are still celebrating a tradition that this very first Passover inspired, this first Passover foreshadowed. The ritual we're going to reenact and participate in today has five biblically derived names. <clears throat> Number one, it's called the Eucharist. That is derived from Mark fourteen twenty three, where it says that he had taken a cup and given thanks. And in Greek, the word for given thanks is Eucharistic, Eucharisteo, from which we get the word Eucharist, to give thanks. The second biblical name is the breaking of bread, Acts 2, 42 and 46 and Acts 20, verse 7 and 11. The breaking of bread. The third one is the table of the Lord or the Lord's table, 1 Corinthians 10, 21. The fourth, and this might be the most controversial of the five biblically derived names, it's often called communion. This comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 16. We could call it a sharing or a fellowship or a communion. Here's the verse. It says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? A koinonia, a communion, a fellowship in the blood of Christ. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians 10, 16. And then the fifth and probably most common title that we use here is the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty. Turn with me to Mark chapter 14. <clears throat> As we today go from one lamb to another, from a Passover lamb to the Passover lamb, from the Passover meal to the Lord's Supper. I want to start in Mark 14, 12 through 16. Read this and review it with you. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. And so here Mark does something that he does some seven or eight times in his gospel. He first gives a time designation that is general. And then he more specifically defines it in the next phrase. And so on the surface, these appear to be contradictory. They would be two different days. But he's giving the general frame work, like we might use the word Christmas time the general framework, and then he gives the specific time of this, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed or slaughtered, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Uh, It's not a matter of of if, is it? It's a matter of when and where. Well, when's already decided for them as well, so it's really just a matter of where. And so they posed this question to Jesus, knowing that every year of his life he faithfully celebrated the Passover. There would be no question of whether he would participate. Where do you want us to set up for this? And he sent two of his disciples, it was actually Peter and John, and he said to them, by the way, Luke tells us that, and he said to them, go into the city, that would be Jerusalem, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. As I shared before, this is a very unusual sign. This is a prearranged sign for the disciples to know who to follow because If men carried water in those days, it would have been in a wineskin, not a pitcher. Women carried water in pitchers. And so this was a a very stark, conspicuous sign for them to follow. And he says, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, 
the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover? So this is obviously prearranged. The owner is going to recognize who the teacher is. That's all he needs to hear. He knows Jesus. He knows he is the teacher. He has already uh, leased out this guest room for him to have the Passover. Actually, Jews had to loan out extra rooms to any pilgrim who was in Jerusalem for the Passover because the Passover meal had to be eaten within the city walls. And so if you had room, you were under an obligation of God to loan that out to other Jewish people. And so Jesus has prearranged this, gives them this sign. Verse 15, he himself, the owner now, will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. It would have had the the low table, the couches, the pads, uh, pretty much everything would have been in place except the food and the drink. And he tells them, prepare for us there. So it's going to have to be a large room. There's going to be 13 men there uh, partaking in this meal, at least the 13 of them. Verse 16, the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. And so we notice there in those five brief verses that Mark mentions Passover four times. It's clearly what he has in mind to communicate to us. The Jews would celebrate or would slaughter the Passover lamb on Abib or Nisan 14, the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar. And then on the next day, Nisan 15 would be the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And sometimes the Feast of Unleavened Bread is loosely referred to as Passover because they're obviously associated with each other and they're on the the same time frame. One follows the other. So the Passover lamb itself would have been sacrificed or slaughtered on Passover day, Nisan 14. And then between sundown and midnight, they were required to have the Passover meal where they would eat that lamb after it had been cooked over fire. This would then have been on Nisan 15, because the Jewish calendar, the day begins at sundown. And so it would then be between sundown and midnight that they would have had the meal here that we read about, which means that Jesus later dies on Nisan 15, the first day of unleavened bread. Jesus dies on the very same day in the Jewish calendar that they have the Last Supper together. It would be the next day in our reckoning, of course. Now, it is critical that we prove something here before we go any further, because what we're talking about here as Christians is that we have continuity with Judaism, and there's also discontinuity, but it is important that we recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of something. Jesus is the, the answer to promises and foreshadowings of the Old Testament. And one of the most critical connections in all of this is the connection between Passover and what we call the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. And so to make this connection clear and strong, we must prove that this meal is the Passover meal. There are actually biblical scholars who argue that it's not, that it's just some other meal. But I want to show you that it in fact is so that we see that one has replaced the other. One has become the other. He has transformed the Passover into what we're going to do today. So what we do today is a tradition and a ritual that goes back 3,400 years. Here's the evidence. First of all, Mark uses the word Passover four times, as I pointed out. The second thing is this meal had to be eaten within the city walls. The disciples are staying in Bethany. 
If this was any other meal, they could have eaten it in Bethany. But they are understanding, he says, go into the city. They know that they have to have a place inside the city walls because that was God's ordinance for the Passover meal. Next, it had to be eaten between sundown and midnight. And we see that this is what happened, verse 17, when it was evening. When it was evening, they came with the twelve. The normal meal for this time, the normal time for the evening meal was late afternoon. Late afternoon. And so this is clearly the Passover meal. We see in verse 26 that they sing a hymn. This was the standard practice of the Jews. Once Passover was over, they would continue singing of the Hallel, that group of psalms from 113 to 118 that they would sing at the Passover. They would sing some of them as they came into Jerusalem, some of them uh, over the meal itself. In fact, as they were having the meal, they would stop and sing some of the Hallel, one of those psalms. And then at the end of it, they would sing from 115 to 118. And that's what's happening in verse 26. It's probably midnight by the time they get to that point of the evening. There's also the serving of wine, the fruit of the vine at this meal. And that would not always be a part of a normal Jewish uh, dinner. They would not have always had wine at their meals. Often it would have been water. And so that's another evidence. Now with all of that in mind, let's go back to Exodus 12 for a moment. And let's just point out a couple of uh, important things. Uh, symbolism and foreshadowing that takes place in Exodus 12. Several things uh, stand out to us with this passage that I've read this morning and that that we must continue to think about as we partake this morning. The first is we saw that this event, this Passover, this final judgment of God on the land of Egypt, when he would deliver his oppressed people from this worldly, ungodly place of pagans, that the final act of God in his strong right arm that moves out is the death of the firstborn of all the land, both man and beast. And this warning came to the nation of Israel, even as the judgment came to the nation of Egypt. And so God comes to them and he gives them this this event that will be their salvation. It will be their deliverance. It will be the shield between the wrath of God and the people of God. And it is so significant that it will actually start their calendar. He says, this will mark the beginning of the year for you. This marks the beginning of the nation. It marks the beginning of your life. It marks the beginning of being set free. It marks the beginning of your year. This then became the most important of the three annual feasts of the Jews. The most significant was Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We read here that they are to obtain this animal on the 10th of the month, and then they are to kill it on the 14th, meaning that this animal would be part of their lives and part of their family, and often even inside their homes, this one-year-old male lamb or kid, if it was a goat, and they would have it there with them for five days. We're also reminded here that the whole nation were to be priests to God because there's no priest here mentioned. There's no altar mentioned. There's no central place of sacrifice mentioned. Each family, each head of that family would slaughter this animal because they are a family. They are a nation of priests, Israel was to be. And so they would gather then on the 14th day and they would, they would sacrifice this lamb, this unblemished male lamb. Certainly we have in that a foreshadowing of Christ who would be the unblemished Lamb of God, the one without sin, the one who was undefiled and separated from sinners, Hebrews 7 says, the one whose blood is precious, who was sinless and perfect in all of his ways, 
This, this, this Passover lamb had to reflect, had to foreshadow Christ. Verse 5, he shall be an unblemished male, a year old. A year old, full of life, full of vigor, young and, and vibrant little lamb. In that, it would be a substitute for Israel's firstborn. Many of those firstborn, of course, would have been, well, they would have been of all ages. Many of them would have been babies and small children and toddlers, full of life, full of vigor. And so this little, this little lamb that they brought into their family was a substitute for their own children, sparing them of God's judgment. It had to be a, an unblemished lamb also because it had to be a real sacrifice. You know, no, no bringing out the weak and the wounded and the sick and, you know, this, this old, <laughs> decrepit old sheep with, you know, hopping around on three legs or something blind in one eye. No, no, no. You're not going to call out your bad stuff. You're going to bring something valuable. It's got to be a real sacrifice in this Passover. He goes on to talk about the food at this unusual meal. I mean, first of all, they're kind of eating their pet, you know, and now, now we got to eat this unleavened bread, just flat and kind of bland and unleavened to show that we got to get out of here, people. we got to get out of here in haste. Egypt represents sin. Egypt represents the world. God says, don't, don't wait around for that bread to rise. Don't wait around for the leaven to do its work. Leaven represents sin. We want unleavened bread because we've got to leave here in haste. You've got to flee from sin in haste is the foreshadowing. In fact, the whole Christian life is the feast of unleavened bread. Passover is is the cross, Passover is our moment of salvation, and then our life is the feast of unleavened bread, indefinitely, fleeing from sin that would ruin and poison your life, as it were. It speaks of bitter herbs there to remind them of the bitter enslavement under the oppression of Egypt, and it reminds us of the bitter enslavement to sin. And then they were to take this blood that they captured from the slaughtered animal and they were to smear it on the doorframe of their houses, on the posts and on the lintel. And they were to do this trusting the promise of God. They were to do this in faith that this blood would be the shield between the angel of death and that home. And that all who were in that house under that blood would be protected as God moved throughout the land on that fateful night. Only those who believed God would do it. Only those who trusted that this was a real threat and a real promise would carry out. And then the text tells us that God will judge all the gods of Egypt. That's because there would be a firstborn bull that would die and a cow and a goat and a jackal and a lion and a baboon and a ram. These were the gods of Egypt. These were the things that they built idols to and worshipped for various aspects of their character, their strength and their wisdom and whatever their fertility. And so God is going to systematically decimate this nation and kill the firstborn of everything, showing that he is the God of gods and he's judging Egypt and he's judging the power behind Egypt, that being Satan himself. All of this, the foreshadowing, all of this looking forward to the great fulfillment when the Lamb of God would be slaughtered, when the Lamb of God would offer up his perfect blood to cover our sins. And if we take him by faith and hide under his shed blood, then the wrath of God will pass over us when we breathe our last. It would have been the head of the household who would, year after year after year, would explain all of the symbols of the Passover meal. The head of the household would stand up and the children, and often it would be the youngest child, would say, why do we do this? And they would then begin to explain what the bitter herbs meant and what the lamb meant. 
Isn't it awesome to think Jesus, as the host of this dinner, would have had that task? As they went through the Passover meal, he would have recounted the Passover from Egypt with his disciples. Now, think about the disciples for a moment. Here they are doing something they've done every day, every year of their lives. They're all in their 20s and 30s, we would imagine. And in fact, they may have done this two or three times with Jesus himself. And there's no indication for them at the moment, at least what we've read so far, that anything's going to be any different about this Passover than has been different from the 1,400 years before them. And so they're just going along. I'm sure they came into this room solemn. They came into this room joyful. It marked a huge day in the Jewish calendar. Here they are gathering once again to, to go through this ancient ritual as fellow brothers in the Jewish faith, following this Messiah, having no idea that anything different is going to happen. And then the unexpected happened. Then the remarkable happened. Then the astounding happened that had never happened before, even in their times of having the Passover with Jesus. Verse 22, while they were eating, that's important, while they're actually consuming the meat of the lamb that was slain to cover their sins in a temporary way, Jesus takes some bread. And after a blessing, after saying, we praise you, O Lord God of the universe, O sovereign Lord who brings forth food from the earth, he broke the bread and he gave it to them. Now, the emphasis here is not on the breaking because his body wasn't broken. No bones were broken. The emphasis is on the distribution of the bread to each one of them. And he says to them, take it, in other words, eat it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, this would have been the third cup. There were four cups of wine in the two to three hour Passover meal. The third cup was the cup of blessing or thanksgiving. The fourth cup is called the cup of consummation. He takes the third cup and he gave it to them, one cup, and they all drank from it. So not very high on the hygiene list. They didn't know about germs, but they're really high on the unity picture here. So they take the one cup and they pass it around to the, to the men that are gathered. And they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant. Now Dan already referred to this verse back in Exodus this morning. This is straight out of the Septuagint, word for word. When Moses, when they slaughtered the animal and he dipped the branch in it and he sprinkled it on the people to confirm their agreement with the old covenant of Moses... And it was called the blood of the covenant that he sprinkled on them. Jesus uses those same words here. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Not spilled, not sprinkled, but poured out. It's an intentional word. It's a deliberate word. Truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So he has now taken this ancient ritual and he's transformed it right before their very eyes. I wonder if they even knew what had just happened. Probably not. I wonder if they understood the magnitude of what just took place. Never again would a Jewish believer need to practice Passover again. It's over forever. It's made obsolete. It's transformed. He says, take it and eat it. Don't just sit there and hold it. Consume it. 
Take it in, all the way in. Don't just taste it. Don't just sniff of it, but take it all the way in. It represents me. It represents myself. It represents my body. It was clear to them that the bread did not become the body of Christ. How ridiculous, how absurd, how blasphemous. The, the, the bread can't become the body of Christ. It's clear that he is saying this represents my body because my body is right here in the moment. They could clearly see a distinction between the bread and Christ. And so he, he tells them to take it in by faith. The bread then is a substance. It has a solid character to it. It has a symbol to it. Christians have been somewhat divided over what that symbol is. There are two that have merit. The first is that the bread representing the body of Christ is saying to us in the Lord's table that there is the real presence of Christ here. Now, not in the bread, of course, but by His Spirit. And this is the traditional reform view, the Calvinistic view, and it has a lot of merit to it. What this view says is that in the Lord's table, it is more than a memorial. It is less than transubstantiation of Roman Catholicism. It is less than consubstantiation of Lutheranism. But it is more than a memorial. And what this view says is that when we practice the Lord's table, we can uniquely commune with the person of Christ through His Spirit, through this ordinance, in a way that is special, in a way that is unique, in a way that is different than any other way we can do that. This view says that there is a communing with Christ in the elements through faith, not superstition, through the Spirit of God, not any transformation of the elements, okay, that is different than communing with Christ and singing a song, or communing with Christ and hearing a sermon, or communing with Christ privately in prayer. This is an interesting view. I challenge you to go do some study on it, do some reading on it. I'm actually torn between this view and the, and the other view I'm about to share. From my own experience, I feel like there have been times where there is a special communion with Christ that I have through the ordinance, through this practice that we do together, that I don't have any other way. There may be some merit to this view, that the, the bread then represents the real presence of Christ in the moment by His Spirit. The second view, and this would be the typical Baptistic view, is that the elements are symbolic and memorial only, right? That they are symbols of the body and blood of Christ, and they are to remind us. And so this is all about just a a, a recalling to mind. And and I think we're all on, on board with that. At a minimum, that's what it is, right? Jesus said, do this as often as you do it in what? In remembrance of me. And so that, that's, that's at a minimum. Whether there's more to it than that with that other view, I'll leave that for your investigation. Look at verse 23. He takes the cup. They all drink from it. This is a, this is a communal type event. This is not something you do in private. This is not something you do alone. You do this with bodies of believers And they partake of this cup as a community of believers. They are sharing in the cup. They are communing in the cup. This is to picture the oneness that we have in Christ. This is to picture our oneness and our unity with the atonement of Christ. The shed blood of Christ. Verse 24. 
Oh, this is so glorious. This is my blood of the covenant. Not the Mosaic covenant, not the old covenant, but what Hebrews calls a better covenant, a new covenant, a new arrangement between God and his people. Jesus says that this blood, which portrays his death, will ratify this covenant. It is the the way this covenant will go into action. It's how it will be sealed and ratified by his very death. Hebrews 8 through chapters 8 through 10 talk about the new covenant, the better covenant. Christ is the mediator. It's the covenant where God will write his law on our hearts, no longer on tablets of stone, but on the inside, right? It's a covenant where we're forgiven of all of our sins and we know it. It's a covenant where there's a perfect sacrifice made for all time and for all who would trust in it. So much more there. You need to maybe this afternoon read Hebrews 8 through 10. You'll be blessed. Verse 25, he uses the most emphatic language possible. He says, I will never, ever, under any conditions, ever drink of the fruit of this vine again until that day when I drink it new. Matthew tells us, new with you in the kingdom of God. You know what he just did in verse 25? He just took a Nazarite vow. He just consecrated himself for his offering. He says, before his offering, I will never drink again alcohol again until we drink it new in the kingdom. This is our Lord preparing himself for what's coming. It's also our Lord looking forward to that day of his second return, looking forward to that time when he drinks it again with us in the kingdom of God, the messianic kingdom. That, by the way, tells us that the kingdom hadn't come. Even though Jesus was present, the kingdom had not arrived. He is speaking of a future day, that day. It'll be a new day. When God reigns on earth, when the rule of God has come down from heaven, the kingdom of heaven has become the kingdom of God on earth. And Jesus indicates here it has not yet happened in its fullness. And so we wait for the kingdom. Now, just as that first Passover, that first Exodus gathered out of the world an infant nation that would be a people for God, God would be their God and they would be his people So when Jesus comes again, he will again gather the nation to be his people, the nation of Israel, the remnant. And so we have before our eyes then in Mark chapter 14, the transformation from the very last Passover to the very first Lord's Supper, where Jesus takes these two elements and sets before us their meaning. I'm going to give you three points of application before we partake by way of preparation for the Lord's table. Number one, we need to receive this by faith. We can only worthily receive this by faith. Just as the ancient Israelites would have put that blood on the door frame, believing, so we eat and drink believing. As you do that this morning, as you eat and as you drink, you are saying by your actions, I believe this. I believe it completely. I'm all in. I'm wholehearted following this provision for my sins. You are saying by your actions, I know that I am a partaker of the benefits of the new covenant. This is not some rote thing we just go through mindlessly. This is an announcement that you're making to everyone around you that you are a believer and that you are a partaker and that this is a serious thing to you. As we take each element then, that representing his body and that representing his shed blood, 
and to take it into our very being, to actually ingest it and digest it, we are showing that this is a picture of taking in Christ, where we bring Him all the way into our lives through a wholehearted faith and a wholehearted commitment to Him. What this tells us then is that this is for believers only. This is for believers to renew and to refresh their soul just as food renews and refreshes our bodies. This ordinance then aids faith and it quickens faith and it confirms our faith, but it never replaces faith. It's never to be done in the absence of faith. This is not a converting ordinance and therefore it is not for unbelievers. In fact, doing this as an unbeliever willfully and knowingly may make you worse. It may harden your heart further. You should not do this as an unbeliever. J.C. Ryle said this ordinance is meant to sustain life, not to impart life. So God has given this to the people of God exclusively. It is an ordinance for believers only. And, and so I would charge you with that and warn you with that. We must receive it by faith. Every part of this is an act of faith. Secondly, it must be preceded with self-examination. Some suggest that that's why Mark arranged this chapter the way he did. Look at verses 17 to 21. It's when Jesus says somebody's going to betray him among the group. And they all start doing what? Some self-examination. Here it is right in the narrative, right in the story. Between the Passover and the Lord's Supper come the disciples grieved, looking at the Lord and saying, surely it is not I, is it? And so each man... By his design, because he didn't come right out and point the finger, each man goes into soul-searching mode before they would take and before they would drink. So verse 17 and 21 tells us to examine ourselves. The very ordinance does. This ordinance, not only does our eating and drinking say, I believe, I know I'm a partaker, but this eating and drinking announces, I commit myself to the requirements of this covenant. When I take in these elements, I am saying by my actions, I accept the obligations of this covenant. And so this must be done with a proper heart attitude. I think there are really three components of a proper heart attitude, of a proper self-examination. I think we could break it down into these three components. components. Number one, confess your sins and repent of them. This is a time for us to examine ourselves, verbalize to God our, our repentance, our confession, our sorrow, our desire to turn away from sin, known sin in our life, to agree with God, to call it what God calls it, not, not mistakes, but sins, evil, wickedness, and offer it up to Him what He already knows anyway, and and, and, and make that right, to have a short account, to clean the slate this morning before you would partake. Secondly, and following right on the heels of that, should be a, a renewed commitment to the new life in Christ. A renewed commitment to follow closer, to pursue harder, to love deeper, to pray more, to study more, to evangelize more. Whatever it is God lays on your heart, it's a, this is a, a time to kind of check in on your spiritual life and say, God, I want to recommit myself today and following you closer to living this new life you've given me. And then thirdly, it really, this third area relates to those around us and on the horizontal scale. 
to take the elements in a worthy manner is to say, God, I want to walk in love and I want to walk in peace and, and I want to walk in unity. And I don't want to take this in, in any way if I'm a, a, a stumbling block to a brother, if I've offended or someone's got an offense against me and that's not resolved. And, and maybe they're in this church and maybe they're right there on the pew with you. We need to make that right before God and before others before we partake. You see, our eating and drinking says, I believe. It says, I'm under the obligations of this covenant. And it says, I'm one with each other. And so we can't pretend that we're one by eating and drinking and and really not be. And so we must take that to heart. The third uh, area of application is the positive and the glorious and the exciting and the celebratory part of this. And that is we need to anticipate the Lord's coming kingdom. Verse 25, let's be like Jesus and let's do what he did. He anticipated that great day when we would do this again in the kingdom. In the messianic banquet, when we sit at his literal table in his literal presence and feast with him. Oh, what a day that will be. You see, a memorial, and this is a memorial, makes us sad. Rightfully so. But the looking forward part makes us glad. This is a celebration. It's not all gloom and doom this morning. It is a time to smile. It's a time to rejoice. It's a time to anticipate. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, we do this and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I look back and I look forward. That's the Lord's table. Can I just remind you what this kingdom is going to be like so that you can anticipate well? This is just from Isaiah. In the kingdom of Christ on earth, there will be a worldwide hunger for truth. All nations will stream to Jerusalem and to the temple to hear the word of Christ, to sit at his feet. And the result of that will be the disappearance of biblical illiteracy and theological ignorance. It will vanish. The whole earth, Isaiah says, will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. You won't have to say, know the Lord, because the person you say that to will know the Lord. (laughs) Everyone will know the Lord and know His glory and know His truth. The second thing this kingdom will be marked by is peace between nations. No more conflict, no more wars, no more need for treaties. Christ will be present as the judge of all nations, and He will judge between nations and between conflicts, and the King of kings will settle everything with fairness and justice. Then on an individual level, there will be swift and perfect justice for every evildoer. No one will get away with any crime in the kingdom of Christ. The all-knowing, all-powerful, omniscient Christ will have his ways and means to immediately stamp down on all wickedness on this earth. There will be no more frustration with slow courts and, and corrupt judges and worldviews that are ungodly and unbiblical. Everybody's worldview will be godly and biblical. We heaven on earth. What else will mark the kingdom of Christ? The animal kingdom will be transformed. I used to love watching animal shows when the cheetah would attack the gazelle. God made the cheetah, you know, 10 miles an hour faster than the gazelle. I used to love watching those as a kid. I don't like watching them anymore. I don't like watching the death and destruction in the animal kingdom. The gore and the guts and the blood and the violence. I mean, it's just marked with violence. And that's going to be gone when Christ returns. The animal kingdom is transformed. The wolf and the lamb will lie down together in peace. The cow and the bear will graze side by side in the field. The toddlers will play with snakes because they're no longer poisonous. 
The lion will lay down with the lamb. No more war among animals. There will be no more weeping. Death will be a very rare event. People will live to the age of trees. A hundred years will be a young life. There may be people who will live the entire thousand-year reign of Christ. We'll experience long, long lives of health and wealth and prosperity and peace. It'll be paradise regained. It'll be God present with his people. No one will have needs. All will be joyous. All will be celebration. Work will be blessed. Serving Christ, ruling and reigning with him. Just can't imagine something more glorious than when this planet is restored to the way it was originally before the fall of Adam and Eve. And so that's what we look forward to.